0: My name's Alex Philp, and I'm the Director of Overseas Collections Management here at the National Library, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the evening. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngambri and Ngunnawal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, and to pay our respects to their Elders past and present. It's my pleasure to see so many of you here this evening for the second Griffith Review Conversation of 2015. We're very pleased to continue this collaboration with Griffith Review and editor, Dr Julianne Schultz. The National Library is proud to be the largest and most actively developing research collections on Asia in Australia. The Library's Asian collections focus on contemporary Asia from the the 19th century onwards and we hold over 650,000 volumes in Asian languages. Systematic collecting began in the 1950s and we cover a range of subjects such as history, politics, current affairs, society and culture. The collections are strongest for the countries of East and Southeast Asia and there are also very rich holdings of English language material on Asia. A couple of years ago the library did a strategic review into the scope of our overseas collecting and we affirmed our focus again on acquiring Asian language material. We're immensely proud of it, and we see it as important for our role in supporting first-class scholarship and researchers. The collection helps these researchers to put Australia in a global context. Now, tonight's conversation will focus on edition 49 of Griffith Review, New Asia Now, which is a journey through the writing and diversity of the Asian region. Tonight, we welcome three of its contributors, Annie Zaidi, Shen Kei and Miguel Siyuko, who hail from India, China and the Philippines respectively. And we also welcome the issue's co-editor, Dr. Julianne Schultz, to the library. Dr. Schultz is founding editor of the Griffith Review and a professor at Griffith Centre for Cultural Research. Dr. Schultz was appointed as a member of the Order of Australia in 2009 for her services, services to the community and as a journalist, writer editor, and academic. Dr Schultz will chair tonight's discussion. Annie Zaidi writes in both English and Hindi across genres. As a journalist, she's reported from across India and has collaborated on an illustrated book of poetry, has published prize-winning plays, and her essays and short stories have been widely anthologized. Her essay, Embodying Venus, about nudity as a symbol of domination and protest is published in New Asia Now. Shen Kei has gone from promising talent to established writer, to banned author in the space of six novels. She's won, among others, the Chinese People's Literature Prize, the Yu Dafu Prize for Fiction, the Chinese Literature Media Award, and the Top 20 Novelists of the Future Prize. Northern Girls was long listed for the Man Asia Liter- Literary Prize. And her story, A Little Life, is published in New Asia Now. Mm-hmm. Miguel Suyuko won the Man Asia Literary Prize for his novel, *Ilustrado*, a satirical look at the F- Filipino political elite. He writes about topics unsuitable for the polite dinner table, politics, religion, sex and human folly. His essay, Beating Dickheads, about the role of the writer in a corrupt political environment is published in New Asia Now. We also have with us Dr Jing Han, Head of Subtitling and Program Preparation for SBS TV, who will act as translator this evening. Dr Han also lectures on translation studies at the University of Sydney, sorry, University of Western Sydney, and has presented frequently at national and international conferences. She's just completed the translation of the Chinese writer's Yi Jin's novel, Debt of Love. Please join me in welcoming our guest speakers to the National Library.
1: Well, thank you very much for being here. Um, It's a great pleasure to to be back here for another of these wonderful conversations with with contributors to an edition of Griffith's Review. This is, I think, without question, our most ambitious edition ever. It's number 49, and across two volumes we have 49 writers from 20 countries. Um, When we started this project, which was very generously supported by the Australia Council... um, it was at a time when there was more public focus, I think it's fair to say, on what the Asian century would mean and how we, as Australians, would interact in the region. And so we at Griffith's Review had the feeling that there'd been a lot of concentration, a lot of discussion about the trade issues and about the the commercial dimensions and some discussion about people-to-people activities but very little conversation about the points of cultural exchange, of really understanding the very great diversity of the countries in the region with whom we were trying to position ourselves. And so we had this mad, crazy idea that we would try and find a group of writers who were all born since 1970, so a sort of a, a younger generation of of writers from countries in this whole vast region who might like to write for Griffiths Review. So working with my co-editor Jane Cayman's, who runs the Asia Pacific Writers and Translators Association, and who was a founding director of the Hong Kong Writers Festival, who spent most of her career working in the region and has very strong connections to sort of writing networks. We put out a call and received, within a very short period of time, I think about 300 submissions from writers across the region. When we started going through them, there were probably more than 200 that we could very comfortably have published, though the standard, the quality, the insights were exceptional. So getting it down to 49 across the two volumes, both the print volume and the supplementary e-volume, was a very difficult task. But I'm very pleased with, with what we've come up with. Um, this this group of young writers really brings a great insight into their countries and the changing nature of their societies, their interrogation of the history, the social relations and so on. So this is a great sort of exercise in old-fashioned cultural diplomacy in a way to now have the opportunity to bring some of these writers to Australia to hear from them directly. One of the things that was very apparent in the um, in the writing was that everyone was dealing with evolving political systems one way or another. And there was a sort of a sense of... Miguel addresses this very directly in, in his essay, Beating Dickheads, of the corruption of the Philippines. And so I'm sort of interested in drawing you each in to talk about the sort of similarities and differences in terms of this evolving political, um, evolving political systems in your countries and the points of similarities, whether it's in terms of corruption, dynastic power, evolving democracies and so on. Miguel, would you like to start the conversation? Sure. By yeah. talking?
2: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, I come from a very corrupt and complicated, troubled society. But really what it is, is, is it, it's a society where the, these global problems of inequality and institutionalized uh, oppression have have collected and deepened into systems. Um, And in the Philippines there's this sense of hopelessness that uh, our our votes mean nothing. And so that the premise of of, of my piece was that uh, given that there's no way we can get rid of these dynastic families who have established these these neo-feudal uh, uh, kingdoms in in their region, um, the most that the writer can do, I think, is, is is really look to the long game, and take from them, take from these politicians, uh, their vanity, and and take from them their legacy, so that uh, they will thie- uh, thieve and they will they will pillage all they like as they have for decades. Um, but the, the least we can do is make sure that that, that the world knows and uh, what they're doing, and, and that they know that we know. Uh, so this is sort of the premise that that, that uh, I, I put together. Um, because really, there's there's a sense that there's nothing we can do. Mm. Um, our, our current president uh, Benigno Aquino III is is the son of a former president, um, the, 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 the the son of Ferdinand Marcos. the, the, the a deceased dictator, is now a senator and a front-runner in, in the elections. Um, Joseph Estrada, a president who was ousted uh, for, for plundering billions, has been pardoned and is now mayor of Manila and is one, one of the most powerful men in the country. His mistress has ensconced herself in, a, in an adjacent uh, city as, as mayor. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous, and we, we just can't do anything about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you found that by writing, you've written about many of the rumours and stories. Um, no microphone. You've written about many of the rumours and stories, and and uh, well, not rumours, but the, the real situations in in the Philippines for this piece in a way that you would not have been able to write about it at home. Is, is that fair to say?
2: I think so. I think uh, the way I wrote about it uh, would not have been published uh, in, in any print. Journal or magazine in the Philippines, uh, partly because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm voicing a lot of the, the the rumors and frustrations that the people discuss in private, um, but would be uh, sued or, or 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 punished for for put printing or, or discussing in public. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the Philippines, defamation is is a crime. Uh, it, it's it's a punishable. Uh, with uh, six years in prison, um, if, if you print something against a politician, however true or not it is, they have the right to file a case, and, and very often what they'll do is they'll file a case in a far-flung jurisdiction, so that the reporter who has has to travel at his or her own expense, uh, get, take time away from their job, often these are jurisdictions that are, that, that are very um, inhospitable, to, uh, and They're often very. They're ruled by the politician themselves. Um, so there's this harassment, and, and it, it creates this sense of self censorship. Um, so rumor, innuendo, you know, as as healthy a thing these are, um, in in for for people who are frustrated, um, there. And, and and as as much as we may have a free press in the Philippines, there's still many things that we can't say.
1: Mm. Mm. So, Annie, when you first read Miguel's piece, you said, oh, this sounds like India, but maybe we're not so bad.
3: (laughs) When I first read it, there's this line in his essay where he says that um, it is the most corrupt and something to that effect and I was uh, my instinctive reaction was no no he doesn't know India (laughs) but uh, by the time I came to the end of his piece I was like hmm maybe it is a little worse in the (laughs) Philippines Um, India has very serious corruption issues Um, corruption was one of the one of the most uh, important uh, election issues in our last parliamentary elections there is, uh, I don't know if you use the same term here, scams. So there is a scam related to everything. Um, ever since I've grown up, I've grown up hearing about scams. There was something called a, um, a fodder scam, where, you know, fodder for mm-hmm. cattle and animals. There were people making money off of that. There was something called coffin scam, where people was making money on dead soldiers' coffins, then there was some other scam, and then there was... It's a series of scams, and Mm -hmm. it is a known fact in India that almost everyone in government and the bureaucracy makes money illegally. The question is, who makes how much? Mm -hmm. Um, And in India, it is also uh, similar to what Miguel was saying, that uh, reporters face very serious risks. Uh, There is, of course, this whole thing of defamation and using policy and law against the people. But uh, the other thing is that people are just often killed, especially in smaller towns and places where people are not directly connected to powerful people. Uh, Whistleblowers are often killed. One of the major campaigns that has been running for the last 10 years or more actually has been the whistleblowers act. we've been asking for protection for whistleblowers. We still don't have that, and in one of the recent cases, the Vyapam scam that's it's it's a it's a scam related to jobs and admission into professional mm-hmm. courses into medical colleges and things like that. Um, somebody blew the lid off that scam, and uh, apparently at least twenty five people. Who are witnesses or accused in the scam have died mysteriously one after the other. Mm. So the corruption is very serious, and it is uh, the saddest part about that is that we hear about the biggest things. We, do, we we don't even hear about the ways in which the poorest and the most vulnerable communities are affected by very small degrees of corruption. Mm. Mm.
1: So Kaye, when when we talk. About this yesterday at the Byron Writers Festival, and you'd listen to the descriptions of the Philippines and India, and you said, "Well, that's a description of corruption. I'm talking about something which is rotten." How, how do you say? How do you explain that in terms of your understanding of China now? <laughs>
4: 我觉得又进入一个腐败PK大赛 呃,
5: now we seem to enter in the great competition of a corruption. And uh, I don't think any country can compete with China in terms of corruption. And um, in, especially in terms of um, reported, you know, the terms of that um, corruption cases been reported, and then they're talking about uh, number of uh, money being embezzled in terms of billions. And uh, they're talking about, um, in terms of tons, how many cash. The cash is, is actually weight in towns. And they have empty houses to just put the cash embezzled. So in that sense, it is um, um, seriously corrupted in many places, in many circumstances, but Many circumstances have not been reported either
4: um but then we engage感到很自豪因為這證明中國很富裕 但是 um i should um
5: feel proud because china is wealthy now but unfortunately, in, in facing corruption, I often feel speechless. And corruption is only one of many, many problems that China faces. 呃, 无话可说, 一方面是因为, 呃,
4: 一方面你也会有一种特别无助和无奈的这样的一个心理
5: I feel speechless is on the one hand is like I can't raise my voice or my voice can't be heard. On the other hand, I also feel uh, the sense of hopeless and um, uh, despair.
4: So, 一个写虚构作品的作家来说, 嗯, 那么他有另外一个途径, 也就是说在小说里去实现 um, But as a
5: fictional writer, at least I can realize dreams that I can't realize in reality. For example, I can write those corruption write a uh, reality in, in the form of a fiction. And that's the way that I'm using.
4: Because I think the people and the have can to express their But in China, it's not possible. 只要你的声音发出来在微博或者在其他网络平台 well, at least
5: for Filipino and Indian writers, so they can publish their their writing on the website online. But in China that is also very difficult. You can publish certain things but they can be censored quite quickly. And banned or deleted. Uh, government ha- has hired many expertise, and uh, they go through just using keywords, and then in the matter of seconds, your postings can be discovered or detected and can be deleted uh, quite quickly. So, in the way of um, censoring, and in uh, to achieve the way that they want to achieve, so government in the end achieve. The, the kind of a peaceful, harmonious life the way they want it. Mm. So,
1: Miguel, so in terms of your writing, you, you do that as well, of of writing in fiction. I mean, you've, both you and Annie have both had experience of writing as, as journalists, but then choosing to write fictional work... Um, um, for different purposes. I mean, can you just reflect on, on that extra power that you get of writing in fiction and the difference between reporting and writing? You know?
2: Yeah, I, I, I consider myself primarily a, a, a novelist. Um, my first novel, Illustrado, was 150 years of Philippine history through the lens of the, the elite and, and the failure um, over the decades uh, of our leaders to, to create a, a society that actually works. Um, and I wanted to take a, a sympathetic but, but, but very frank look at that. Um, I, I, I come from a privileged background. Um, many of my friends that I grew up with wanted to contribute to the society in, in some way. But there are these structures that have been put up, uh, the church, government, family expectations, uh, patriarchy... Um, uh, uh, media that is is, is incredibly sensationalistic, or lack of education, for example. Where in, in, in the difference with China is is that uh, we can publish anything, but nobody cares because nobody reads it. Um, maybe the middle class does, or, 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 or the, the intellectual elite, but the, the majority of the hundred million Filipinos are, are too busy putting food on the table to actually care. So there's these. Uh, it, I find it very interesting how we've. Uh, configured our societies uh, to allow the powerful to, to to remain in power. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to look at that with with, with my first novel and the second novel. I've I've um, it's it's a novel about uh, sex, power, corruption, and, and gender politics as well, and through satire and 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 through sort of playing with fact and fiction, I'm 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 interested in examining how I can point the spotlight on these. Problems and and these these dastardly dickheads really uh, who have led our country Mm. into this pit that that it's in Um, because I I believe that that writing is just really part of a conversation I, I don't have any illusion that my novel will. Be, you know find its way into the grimy hands of a revolutionary, and they'll take onto the streets and, and, and overthrow the government and create a utopia. But I believe that um, it's part of a conversation that we've been having over the, the ages and over country, uh, uh, across cultures. And I'd, I'd like to think that the um, I'm lucky that my work is actually um, taught in universities and high schools in, in the Philippines. That these young men and women who are reading it, who will one day be the future leaders. Um, whether of corporations, or of government, or even just families, um, will be engaged with these issues um, and and see them a little bit more clearly than they mm-hmm. otherwise would. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Annie, is that sort of part of your motivation as well in your writing, mm-hmm. especially you, your writing about women in in India?
3: Um, I tend to work in a, in a little more compartmentalised mm-hmm. fashion. Mm-hmm. I uh, when I have something political to say, my instinct is to say it in non mm-hmm. primarily and reach out more directly. Also, I trained as a journalist. Um, I was a reporter for a long time, and mm-hmm. I still continue to freelance for newspapers and websites and things. So um, if there is something very direct to be said and urgent to be said, I prefer to say it in non through mm-hmm. a column or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um I turn to fiction, I think, to say the things that are either so nuanced that non-fiction doesn't make sense, Mm -hmm. um, or to say things that I really couldn't say. So, for instance, one of my books is called uh, The Good Indian Girl, which I co-authored with a friend of mine, Smriti Ravendra. It is about... um, the idea of the good Indian girl, what is the good Indian girl, who qualifies as Indian enough and not Indian enough, and things like that. And I could have taken a a more directly either fictional or more directly non-fictional approach Mm. to that. But a lot of the stories we wanted to tell were our stories, the stories of our contemporaries, our friends, friends of friends. So... I kind of took the middle path there, which is to take that same material and then try and try and lead up each story, each anecdote, to a kind of larger picture about who this person is mm-hmm. and what her motivations are and what her compulsions are and how she fails and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in my Drama and script work I tend to often draw upon my journalism. Mm-hmm. That's There are things that uh, um, you s- you see as a reporter and a journalist and you have written about them in direct reportage but still the sense that you still haven't finished saying what you wanted to say and the emotional quality of what, wh- what exactly is the struggle that's happening here, mm-hmm. you cannot put that in non-fiction. Mm-hmm. That's... That's when I don't think do, fic- do a fiction it's interesting I mean that's a good distinction between to get that extra level of emotional engagement
1: which is so so can be lacking in a, in a straight report k um, you, in your story that you've written for Griffith's review you tell it's a it's a piece of fiction and it tells the story of a young girl who has got pregnant when she's been away- gone away from her village and the story has what appears to be an almost dreamlike ending—that that, that she, the family agrees to allow her to have the baby—but in fact, um, that that was a construct. Um, as you, I understand the story is drawn from from a real experience of, of a a relative of yours who went through a rather much more damaging experience of having a very late term termination because of the shame that attached to having. A child out of wedlock in, in modern China. Um, maybe you would like to talk about both the story and also what that says about the position of women in China now, because I think that's something which is very largely unknown um, in Australia.
5: Um.
4: 你讲你的故事和你对当代之谈 第一个问题就是不能要的。第一个问题就是在中国，未婚生子是违法的，这是一个非常重要的、一个非常残酷的一个一条法律。然后，即便是你生下来这个孩子，那么你要交一笔非常巨额的罚款。In this review,
5: I published a short story. is talking about an 18-year-old university girl. She fell pregnant and the problems that she's facing. And basically... Uh, two things, whether to give a birth to the baby or not. First, in China, unwed um, parents who have children, that's illegal. So even if you have the child, in the end, you have to pay a hefty fine. So for the family, for this girl's family, which is very poor, so this is a very harsh reality for them, and even more so than being illegal or illegitimate child. Um
4: 前不久在中国发生有这样的一个事情
5: just a, a few months ago, there is actually a real thing that happened in China. A couple, a lover, a couple, and they, on the brink of a breaking up, uh, they found out the girl actually fell pregnant. And the girl, who was educated in America for eight to nine years, so she knows how to be independent a woman, and she also knows how to um, fight for your own rights. So she decided to have the child.
4: 所以他在网络发起一个众筹的活动
5: so she, has, she initiated a, a public funding uh, through website, uh, asking people to donate money so that she could uh, pay the hefty fine. But her purpose is not really uh, about get, uh, collecting money. She just wants to raise awareness and also as a way of a resistance and to telling people the system is not right and also... Women should have a right to, to decide whether they have, want to have children or not, regardless of whether they
4: are married or not. Uh, in China, even if you want to have a single woman, in China, a single unmarried
5: woman, it is illegal to try to freeze your eggs. So some rich and wealthy women, and so that so they've taken to America or some other countries to get the eggs to get frozen so until one day they may want to mm. have children. So,
1: Annie, in your story, you write about shame and nudity and the way that gets sort of in the in the heads, if you like, of, of, of young women in India. But I'm interested both in hearing you talk a little bit about, about what you've written, but also putting it in the context of your recent mammoth undertaking of putting together a a collection of 2,000 years of Indian women's writing and finding these same fault lines of shame and and ostracision being there in that writing over that long period.
3: So, um, where women are concerned, shame comes from multiple sources. In my essay, I focus on nudity and on clothes, partly because... um, i'm noticing um even in my generation and in generations to come the way women's bodies are used to shame them sometimes directly in the form of uh, you know when when you want to humiliate a woman in public you take off her clothes in public you strip her in public and you kind of parade her around the village or the town or whatever um sometimes there's a protest and if if i've seen pictures of just some random person trying to take the clothes off a woman in public with with no particular agenda attached or anything, just as a way of humiliating and harassing her. And then there is the question of the body. and We grew up with a very private view of our bodies. Um, In India, by and large, particularly in urban India, but I think in most parts of India, um, it is not common to see women wearing... um, very few clothes, or uh, like I I wrote in my essay, uh, Mumbai is a seaside town. We've got several beaches, but you never see any women in any swimsuits. Um, You see men on the beach sometimes with their shirts off and things like that, but never women. So um, the rules obviously are different for men and women, and uh, that's one of the things obviously that does bother me but also the way in which shame particularly applies to women in the sense that if you can shame her, if you can establish that she is open to shame and that she has done something shameful, either by showing her body or the fact that you may even have photographed her body without her knowledge and are putting it up on YouTube or whatever, um, then that becomes a way of shaming the woman, even though she really had no part in, to play in this display of herself. Mm-hmm. Um then that further becomes a way of punishing her because if she can be shamed, then you can further impose punishment upon punishment of her, whether that's through social ostracism or whether it's through legal laws, the way it operates. Um, so th- those are some of the things that I was struggling with. Um, even now, uh, recently, um, after the essay was published, in fact, I read a news report about a, woman, uh, about a case in which there was this picnic spot where um, couples often go to hang out because their parents don't approve of them hanging out at home. So they look for quiet nooks and corners. And this is true of all Indian cities. Um, And what often happens, actually, is that they're completely beleaguered because sometimes the police will come and arrest them. And this just happened in Mumbai a couple of days back where there was this couple in a hotel room and the police just raided them and... um, Charging them with obscenity and public decency, whatever, but they were not in public, they were in a hotel room. The police, uh, actually the police has no mandate, it is completely illegal, the courts have ruled against it, but the police keep doing it. But also it's not just the police, it's also other people who are looking to kind of prey upon vulnerable young people, both men and women, but particularly women. Mm. So very often, um, couples are surrounded in isolated areas. The woman is often gang raped sometimes they 're filmed, photographed, and then that is used as evidence against them and held uh, as a sort of as a form of blackmail that she will hold her peace and not go to the police. Mm-hmm. So there are all these different pushes and pulls in different directions, mm-hmm. and shame is particularly something that uh, like in sheng 's story um, there There is the shame of say an unwanted child or but even if it 's a wanted child, there is still shame attached mm. in India even now um even in very big cities like Mumbai and Delhi, um, single people and particularly single girls cannot find apartments to rent um, it's sort of uh, mm. it's just seen as as you know oh that there will be trouble or mm. oh, um she will bring men home or oh um the fact that some woman who is not married to a man may be uh, hanging out with her friends or somebody in her, own, in her own house which she is paying for will somehow shame the entire housing <laughs> colony or this building. Um, there, there are multiple layers yeah. and levels of shame mm. operating mm. Uh, with regard to women mm. in our culture. Mm. Can I say
2: something? Yes, please. Can I say something? Oh. Hello. Yeah. I, I just want to say something about speaking of multiple levels of shame, really, and and we talk about New Asia now, and and one of the things that I've I've taken from this this wonderful landmark volume is is really what characterizes Asia is is its interconnectedness with the East and the West. Asia is becoming more emergent. We're seeing more of, an, of the effects and influence of Asia on the rest of the world and, and vice versa. Um, and it, it strikes me that you know, when we're talking about the issues here in India, in China, in the Philippines, um, we, so we tend to lose sight of the fact that these are global issues mm. and that the shame really is humanity's shame. Um, if we're talking about these gang rapes in India, they are directly connected to the fact that there is institutionalized violence against women and minorities, or, or the, 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 the less powerful, all around the world. Um, 125 million women, uh, it, it's estimated, are, have suffered genital mutilation um, around the world. One in, three mil, uh, one in three women in the world have been sexually assaulted or raped. One in three. Think about that, that's crazy. Um, Sixty million women are denied education. Um, Ten million are, s- are sold into slavery. A um, thousand Pakistani women every year are killed for honor. Um, at, I think something like 82 or 81 um, countries in the world have um, made homosexuality illegal. Some of it punishable um, by, by death in some countries. I mean, this is a shameful thing that, that, that we should all be um, very concerned about. Um, and it's just something that, that, that has really struck me uh, when, when I'm, I'm reading this volume, is that these issues are, are everyone's. Mm-hmm. You know, you see this with the refugees, for example. I live in Italy right now, um, and there are these by boatloads of thousands, and I know this sounds very familiar to Australia, uh, thousands of people are, are coming, arriving on these shores because why? Um, they have, to the east of them, war. To the, to the south of them, uh, poverty. To the west of them, they have uh, 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 Islamic fundamentalism. And so what do they have? They have the sea to the north, this dangerous, terrible sea, and the unknown. And yet they're so desperate mm. that they will take to boats mm. and risk their lives for the promise of hope, because they've, they've long given up hope. And I think this is a shameful thing, that we're not getting together as human beings. We can send someone to the moon, we can you know, create all these meticulous systems of for our entertainment and, 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 and for our wealth, and yet we're not able to solve these problems together.
1: Mm-hmm one of the things that really struck me when with a lot of the writing that came in for this this collection is that sort of sense of um, interrogating both the shared history and the shared experience but also finding the particular wellsprings of of problems in individual societies and i think that that one of the 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 values of this volume in a way, because it's a sort of a peculiar Australian conceit in a way that you could manage to pull together a volume that represents such a vast number of countries all at, you know, in, in hugely different circumstances. But I do think that what you're saying is that, that what we get is some, some sort of refraction that gives us a real insight into, into shared issues and, and shared ways of dealing with them in a way. Um. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I think of these these issues as it's it's like a blanket of snow. And in, in the places where the problems are deeper, the, the snow will collect mm, even deeper. Mm, but mm. everything gets blanketed with it, mm. and and we tend to forget, particularly when we're looking just at these at, at these well springs. Um, but of course, it is I think helpful uh, to look at how these different cultures are creating these systems and 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 hopefully tackling them.
1: Mm. Mm. Cheng, your new—do you want to talk about your new novel? Because it uh, seems to my new
4: novel, this film, oh, or
1: the, no, Life? the, the, the yes, yeah, the one that you're still writing about, with the. Uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> You don't have to if you don't
4: I watch think it. That's a secret. it's still a <laughs> secret. Okay, that's fine. I wasn't sure whether it was secret or not. Somebody said, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I, can, I can talk it a little. A little. Just a little. <laughs> just a taste, because um, I think it goes to these issues. I think the 抓到了一个违法进行代孕的这样的一个公司
5: uh, my new novel is, again, about Chinese women. And actually, it is very hard for me to write. And my uh, inspiration only came from a piece of news that I heard. Uh, the news uh, says that they have a caught a company, illegal company, running surrogate uh, surrogate mothers and surrogacy. And uh, that company was shut down. So, and then, based on that, I started imagining my own story. And uh, in my story, in my novel, there are four women. They're coming from uh, different places uh, because of for survival and for money as well. So they decided to join this company um, to be a surrogate mother.
4: This company's management is a a 一些非常极端的手段
5: uh, the company, the management system is a bit like concentration camp. Um, women who are there, they have no freedom at all. And they, the methods that used are kind of very extreme to manage them. Um, basically, they re- regard a surrogacy, surrogacy or having, cho- having babies for other women as products. So they need to provide perfect and complete uh, satisfied products to their clients. And um, so, by doing that, they insti- installed a perfect kind of a perfect regime, and um, which includes sleeping, the time you, you go to bed, and the time you get up, and what meals you have, and what sort of interest you should have. So all streamlined in a in a rigid method. So this story is really about um, you know absurd um, and um, sat- satirical type style.
3: Mm.
1: Now, Annie, in India, obviously, this is something which is quite widespread already, isn't it? in
3: fact, the moment she said it, I was just nodding and thinking to myself that uh, the issues are so similar across so many of our countries. Uh, Surrogacy has been... um, India has been a kind of focal point for surrogate parenthood for a while now. I don't know what it's like in China. I don't know if it's... um, If the kind of... Regimen imposed upon the surrogate mothers is quite as harsh. Um, I do know that a regimen is imposed. Um, I also know that uh, that, that the, the needs of the surrogate mother are not really seen as uh, paramount. Um, her body just does become a a kind of a machine that is going Mm -hmm. to deliver something. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, recently there was a case where um, this quite well-known and fairly posh uh, clinic uh, was busted after one of the girls who was an egg donor died. Um, And the interesting thing was that she was underage, actually, and her family claimed not to know at all what she was doing but she lied to them saying she had a job but she couldn't find an actual job so Mm. she used to go to this clinic and uh, she wasn't even 18 yet Mm. and the clinic hadn't bothered to take her family into confidence, they hadn't bothered to verify uh, her age or uh, typically with surrogate mothers they hire women who have been mothers before but uh, for egg donors they'll just take anyone any any young girl Mm. and Mm. It's a kind of exploitation, actually, but we're still kind of having debates about it. There's people, activists, are pushing for a new law to monitor and control surrogate parenthood, but there's so far I don't know if there's been much progress on mm. that front. Um,
1: it's been an issue here because, because, of, the, um, because of the trade, effectively, in, in surrogate children, especially from India and, and Thailand. Um, um, which has raised a whole series of other issues. I mean, I didn't actually anticipate that we would have this sort of gender thing as the sort of central flashpoint, but it's been interesting the way that it's evolved. And Miguel, your story that um, that you tell about um, your corrupt, one of your many corrupt politicians and the the, the uh, reproductive rights, um, uh, the senator whose plagiarism, you know created such a, an issue in your, in your writing um, yeah well I mean
2: again it, it's really these systems that, that have, have allowed for these, these, these um, terrible tragedies on, on the personal level mm. um, in the Philippines we were tr- trying for many years I think uh, for the past 12 years every year the, the congress has tried to enact a reproductive health law and the catholic church has done everything it could to stymie it Um, they threatened to excommunicate the president, they threatened certain professors and universities with with heresy. I mean, what is this, the the Inquisition? I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, If if these politicians and professors supported uh, this bill, um, and in the end what was passed was a very watered-down bill. I mean, the Philippines is a country of 100 million people, uh, our biggest export really is uh, warm bodies. We 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 send Filipinos all around the world, uh, and these Filipinos remit their salaries, um, which account for something like I, I think at last count was ten or fifteen billion dollars, a vast amount of, of our of our GDP. Um, and you know, overpopulation is a problem, um, so much so that. Some families who earn a dollar a day uh, because they have no access to, to repro- reproductive health options, education uh, contraception, um, they have ten children and so what happens is you know going back to exploitation and, and surrogacy, what happens is um, some of these families will sell off their daughters to cyber sex dens so that someone in England can, can some pedophile can can watch this, this, wom- this young girl be sexually abused. Um, and so, what happened was in the Philippines, there was this one Senator, Tito Soto, who will go down in in history as as, as a very infamous uh, terrible politician if I have anything to do with it. He uh, kept played, he, he plagiarized a lot of terror, uh, uh, plagiarized and misrepresented a lot of information in his landmark speeches um, in in the Senate, um, and some journalists um, found that. He had plagiarized and they talked about it. And in other countries, this would have possibly uh, resulted in a reprimand or, or even his resignation. But no, not in the Philippines, where impunity is such a problem. What, what he did was, in his second speech, his follow-up speech, he plagiarized again, just as a big, you know, screw you all, you can't touch me. Um, and in his third speech, he plagiarized again. And in his fourth speech, you can imagine what he did, he plagiarized again. <laughs> Um, and this time he plagiarized from Bobby Kennedy, um, a speech um, from 1962. And so what I did is I wrote um, Bobby Kennedy's daughter, um, Carrie Kennedy, and they said, well, look, at this is what this terrible politician is doing. He's, he's taking um, your father's words and ideas and mis misrep- you know, warping them, really. Um, not just mis- misrepresenting them, he's, he's warping them and using them for something completely opposite. Uh, to what you and your family have often fought for. And it was only then, it was only then with the the, the international uh, attention that the senator saw fit to apologize. Um, but, you know, there was a, a, a case, and not, nothing happened. I mean, there was a case launched against him in the Senate Ethics Committee, but he's still one of the most popular senators around, and he'll be laughing all the way to the bank as his kids one day become senators and continue on in the family business.
1: But you were advised, having had a part in this, it was probably best that summer not to go, that well, not to go back home for, for, for the holidays.
2: Some, some friends in, 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 uh, in the Senate said that, you know, you never know, and he's very upset with you, and um, it may, might be best that you don't come home for Christmas. Mm. Um, I went home anyway, but it, and nothing happened, but I was scared. I was a little bit scared, because um, you never know with these dickheads. Um <laughs> You know, there's just this sense that, that, that we can't speak about what needs to be spoken. Mm. So um, the senator was, was pilloried because of, um, uh, because of his actions he, online. There were memes uh, made about him, hashtags were, were created. Sotocopy became a very popular uh, term for, for plagiarism. Um, and he was embarrassed. We mm. mocked him mm. because we had no other option mm. but to do that. And it was revealed later that he was behind um, this, this this bill that would increase the penalty for defamation uh, twofold. So 12 years rather than the regular six years if that defamation was uh, implemented on online. Mm. So mm. if you Facebook something about him or if you tweet something about him, um, you could be slapped with 12 years in prison.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Kee, your new book, or your, your current book, Des Fugues, um, you've published that in English, um, not, in, not in Chinese. So how do you draw the distinction between what you feel you can say at home and what you want to say in a different, in a different milieu that's not going to be subject to the same level of control? <coughs>
4: 你听的是中文一个总编给我写了一封挺长的那个退稿信
5: uh, my book, my novel, Des uh was only published, the Chinese version was only published in Hong Kong and Taiwan, not in mainland China, and English version was recently published. Uh, the, the, um, uh, I actually sent my manuscript to several uh, publishing houses in China, in mainland, mainland, but were all rejected, and one of the chief editors wrote me a long letter explaining why that they couldn't publish the novel. Um, actually I understand I understand his position when I wrote this novel I kind of knew it wouldn't be able to be published in mainland China
4: 其实上它是一个我写的是二十多年前的一次中国的一次比较大的一个政治事件我是完全凭我自己的想象在写的因为那个时候我也没有经历 嗯，只是因为我觉得长大之后，我觉得呃，我们对对历史的嗯认知往往是只是局部的，或者说只是，或者说是虚假的。嗯，那么我写这个小说也有一个给自己一个交代吧，就是说，嗯，我们曾经有这样的历史。呃，如果说中国的读者能读到。Um,
5: My novel is about a political event that happened over 20 years ago. And um, I actually myself didn't experience that event. And it's all through my imagination because uh, at the time I, I lived in a very remote village. But as I grow up and I feel I realized that um, history is such an important part in our life, and sometimes the history is not presented in an impartial way, sometimes it's actually in a partial way, and sometimes it's even a false way. So I feel like I really need to give myself a truthful account of that um, part of history, and I would also like to think that a young generation in China would benefit from knowing that part of history.
4: 我无意冒犯任何人
5: I have no intention to offend anyone, but if I feel passionate about some topic and I need to write about it, um, while I have no intention to offend anyone else, but if I do not write what I'm passionate about, then I offend myself, and that's also not the thing I would like to do. Mm. Interesting. Is that something which is important for both of you as well, that,
1: you know, being true to yourself in terms of what you're writing?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. But mm. I want to offend people. Yes.
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, these politicians offend, yeah, yeah. want to be called it's honorable. It's honorable. They
2: want to be called, you know, out. the right honorable, whatever. And therefore, if we can offend them, mock them, we're, take, we're stripping them of that, even though, you know...
1: But maybe you have a particular... Priv- you know, you've got a particularly privileged position, I mean, in the sense that you're, you're mobile, you've been educated internationally, you've spent... You know, you, you move easily between countries. Maybe... Do, do, do you feel that privilege in your own...
2: I certainly position? do, but I also feel that as a responsibility. Mm. Because mm. I have that privilege, because I'm an expatriate Filipino mm. who's chosen to live abroad, mm. um, because I want to study these different countries and, and see how they work and they don't work... Um, I take it upon myself mm. to say the things that many Filipinos are thinking or saying in private uh, but cannot say in public.
1: Mm. Mm. And any do you...
3: Um, <laughs> well, I don't like to offend people. I have to confess I am very careful about yes. what I'm saying most of the time. Um, partly also because, uh, because of my journalist training, you have to be careful. Mm. You have to kind of... Uh, um, and not just because I'm afraid of defamation, because uh, journalism stands on that, mm. on, on this assumption that one will not say anything irresponsibly. Mm. So I try and be responsible about what I say. But it is true that it, I, I don't see the point of writing if I can't say what I really mm. want to say mm. as well. So if I can't say it in nonfiction, then I'll say it in... Fiction. In fiction, or plays, or, or like. I'll say it in plays, mm-hmm. or I'll say it in a script, I'll say it in a comic, I'll say it somehow, mm-hmm.
1: whatever. Mm-hmm. I must say that one of the things that was very striking for me as as we were editing this collection was that um, the the openness and the frankness and the intensity with which many of the writers were writing, and the, and I said on the radio this afternoon with Alex Sloan that. Um, it struck me that we've got quite a number of Australian writers, um, including some who are here tonight, um, who've written very, very powerfully as well. But there was a sort of almost a sense that the Australian writers were being a bit more careful um, because they were writing in a publication that was essentially being published in their home country, whereas the freedom that comes from publishing elsewhere is is a plus as well, um, which was sort of interesting... um
3: that is true because I think if I was writing the same memoir for my country, I would have written it in a different way. Mm. Um, here, there are things that uh, there, I can link the concept of shame and bodies to an international mm. kind of movement. That is that, and it is true that it is bodies are used internationally mm. in different ways, etc. Mm. But in my own country. Um, I think I would have been a little more aware of a kind of backlash that may happen, not necessarily actually from people who uh, are on the other side of the fence, Mm. not necessarily politically. Very often, uh, if people are very familiar with the culture, Mm. they tend to nitpick as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So uh, a small thing which of cultural nuance is something that they will pick up on and argue Mm -hmm. about and completely overlook the broad point that you're trying to make.
4: Okay, is there anything else that you'd like to add to that? what you the I don't think I don't
5: think uh, I'm a brave writer. But when I face my work or face my my readers, I just need, need to be honest uh, to myself, but perhaps to be honest also requires a courage. Mm.
1: Well, thank you all very much indeed. Um,